Uh, good to see lots of familiar faces that I recognise. I don't necessarily remember everybody's name now that I'm getting older, so if I say to you, I know you, but I don't know you, you'll forgive me, eh? It's always great in church, I think, to focus on mission, uh, which you've been doing today, particularly in your service, but I know you're also a, a mission-minded church in the broader sense of the, the term. And today I, I want to focus on the missional life, and I want to do that in three ways. I want to talk a little bit about... Um, my organisation help, just a little bit, but also to focus in that context on uh, Joshua and Juvenile, whom you support as a church, and to thank you for that, and then at the end to talk about what mission means for us personally, because I think in line with what you're talking about with your being obedient disciples, taking up the cross and following Jesus, mission is one of those things that's part of our obedience. Uh, Being Jesus' representative in the world uh, is an obedience issue in that sense. When Jesus, before Jesus went, one of his great commissions to his disciples, he said to them, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. So if we're followers of Jesus, we're sent by him and we're representing him uh, in the world. So I, I think there's a real alignment with what you are talking about. Uh, when I, I, we started help in 2010, Okay, so I'm already into that zone of, there we go. We started help in 2010, although formulated the idea in 2009. I really wanted to be, uh, this was a result of a mission trip that we did ourselves where we went to South Africa to be um, part of a Youth for Christ uh, conference where there were 800 uh, delegates, mainly from across Africa, and we were asked to go and do some pastoral work. And it was out of that with staff, and it was out of that that this kind of vision grew for us. And um, But my vision was predominantly training. That's all I wanted to do. Um, I didn't want to do any more than training. But when you're training people and you realise that their kids are going to die if they don't have some medication, you realise what's the good of training people if that's the circumstance. So we started giving some of our own money to some of those things and then people started giving us money for those things and, and it kind of grew from there. So we have a sort of a training and resourcing brief with help. Now, for those of you who've been involved with MMM over the years, how many of you have been involved with MMM? Quite a number of people, yeah? Really, uh, HELP's philosophy is very much aligned with uh, MMM and uh, one of the people that we support in Africa is actually an MMM worker. But it's a line in this sense. We didn't start this to lead things. We didn't start it to run things. We didn't start it to have a presence in another place. We just started it because we wanted to come alongside people and help them. And I know that's very much the philosophy of, uh, of MMM in that context. And um, so we started giving our own money. People gave us some money. Then I had an accountant in my church who said, uh, you need a structure for this thing. So he helped us set up the structure. Um, and you'll see that we, we now have two entities. There's the Help Charitable Trust, which was the first entity that we started. And then there's the Help CT Limited, which we started last year, which is a tax-deductible entity. And the way that I say it to people generally is that, that the Help Charitable Trust is focused on doing spiritual works, and there's some social work involved in that. Um, the Help CT Limited is focused on doing social works that spiritual people are doing. And that's the only way we can get a tax deduction for those things. It can't be about gospel things if you're getting a tax deduction. Australian law is very clear about them. We have to walk a very fine line with that. But basically our desire is to see people helped and we work predominantly with uh, other people 
in situations that God leads us to. And I was thinking of one of those situations this morning because you had two offerings today. When I go to Gilgal Pasiansi uh, Church in Mwanza in Tanzania, and I love that church, it's actually a Pentecostal church. They've planted 40 churches in the last nine years. And I've gone and done work with training and helping their pastors and stuff. But they typically have six offerings. But you see, when you don't have a published church budget, when there's no print, right, you've got to say, well, we're going to have our offering for the pastor's wages now. We're going to have our offering for the building now. So people give what they want. And it took me a couple of years to figure out that not everybody gives to everything. And some people clearly break up their offerings to small amounts and give multiple times. So you have to figure out what you're going to do as the visitor and that kind of thing. But that's a really lively, um, in, in, the, in the godly sense, place to be. And it gives me great joy to be involved with other pastors predominantly who are doing God's work in other places. And there's a real, in a lots of ways, there's a lot of alignment between what you heard from Bill today and what we're engaged with as well because we're finding increasingly our nights are being taken up with people on WhatsApp and Messenger and all those things having conversations about situations there. So it changes your life substantially. So we've been blessed because uh, we've had a... Mm, We've had a, a, oh sorry, that just explains the difference between the two. So we also do trips. You're going to do a mission trip. We take people on trips with us. Part of the idea is to give people exposure, but also I take people who uh, can be useful to the ministry. So um, in April this year, Tony Lyon from Warrandyke Community Church and I went to Tanzania for two and a half weeks and we did pastor training there. So that was purely focused on training for that trip. Uh, but we do a lot of that from here as well, just like Bill does, WhatsApp, email, phone calls, all those kinds of things. Engage with people there in their time zone, which is sometimes inconvenient for us in our time zone as well. So we do trips, we do mentoring, and there's a financial thing involved as well. Like I said, never started out to be involved uh, in the money side of things, but you'll see we had small beginnings going up to last year putting a $156,000 in a mission in Africa and so far this year we've put $167,000 in a mission. Now that blows me away because A, I didn't start out to do it. B, God has provided. The other aspect where it blows me away a bit is now we have people counting on us and that's the hard bit because sometimes you wonder where the next buck's coming from to do that. Uh, I had a situation when I was in Africa in April where I had to say to somebody, look, I've lost my donor for that. So I can't promise you any more money for that area. That's a very hard conversation to have with people um, uh, because you know often they're quite desperate in their circumstance. So we, we, we predominantly have work in three countries, but actually we have some student sponsorship in Uganda as well. So we have uh, student sponsorships in Uganda. We do a lot of work in Rwanda. In fact, Anthony and I will be in Rwanda uh, in a few weeks' time, we'll be there for just over a week and then in South Africa for about 10 days. So a lot of involvement in Rwanda, quite an eclectic involvement there uh, with Youth for Christ, predominantly through their schools but also uh, paying some of the youth workers' wages. And then I'm also involved deeply with the Inca and Ziza churches there, which is the Brethren Group in Rwanda, which is where Joshua and Juvenile fit in. And they have some particular challenges. We have work in Tanzania, uh, predominantly in the city of Mwanza, which is on the south end of Lake Victoria, a very interesting uh, and difficult place to go in some ways, but I'm gradually 
learning how to handle myself there. And multiple works in South Africa. Most of those are where we are working with people doing um, you know, things like orphanages, um, uh, helping mothers with their new babies so they don't kill their babies or give their babies away, uh, educational programs because the church is quite well established in those places and has good structures. So sometimes all they need is a few resources uh, to help them along the way. Let me thank you on behalf of Joshua and Juvenile for your support for them. Uh, You as a church are giving them $2,400 each a year. Now I can tell you that in their context that is a huge contribution Uh, because a a teacher's wage in in Rwanda is around about $4,000. So you can see that that's a substantial uh, part of a person's wage. Excuse me. I've had a chest infection and the cold's now hanging around. So it's graduated to a cold, so that's always nice when that happens for you, isn't it? Um, So, But neither Joshua nor Juvenile get paid for their work. They both have working wives. Um, Juvenile has five children. Joshua has no children. It's quite a heartache for Joshua and Sylvie that they can't have children. They're in their early 40s. It's a big deal in Africa to have children. They have none. And if you could see them functioning in their church, in their community, and with children, you would say there'd be potentially no great appearance anywhere than Joshua and Sylvie. So it's quite a heartache for them. And yet in some ways it has freed them up to be engaged in the ministry that they're involved in. I first met Joshua in 2012. Uh, I had somebody who'd been to Africa who said, look, I've come across this guy. He's looking for somebody to mentor him. Would you be interested? Joshua had just left his uh, corporate position and gone to work voluntarily full-time as the pastor of what then was the little church at Regendi, which is just 45 minutes outside of Kigali in Rwanda. Uh, And that church has flourished over that time. We've been part of that story. The Christian Brethren Trust has been part of that story with providing some funding and so on. But it's really very much a poverty-stricken place. I know what you think when you think Rwanda, but it's a very tiny country. It's smaller than Tasmania, and we, those of us who are from Tasmania know that Tasmania is a small country. Well, Rwanda is an even smaller country, but it has 15 million people. What's in Tasmania? 480,000 or something like that. They freak out when I tell them about Tasmania and the sort of the... The scale of that, they can't cope with that. But they live on the sort of what would be the outskirts of the city, semi-rural, semi-urban, and there are huge problems with HIV and AIDS. There are huge problems with employment, health care, education. And so Joshua is working in all of these spaces to try and lift the lives of his people spiritually, economically, and all those kinds of things. Uh, Joshua is a real enthusiast. He's a funny guy, a great sense of humour. For example, there's a big problem in the churches in Africa with prophets, not P-R-O-F-I-T, P-R-O-P-H-E-T. So in the pre-existing culture, you had the witch doctors and who would, you know, people would pay them for advice. So the prophets in the churches, a lot of them are just like the witch doctor carryover from the old culture and they put people into bondage by what they say. They um, they charge people for advice. They make a lot of money out of doing so. Um, Joshua said to me, "If the church was, if the church belonged to me, I would ban the prophets." 
but they tell me that I'm against the work of God if I dare say anything like that. So it's, there are quite challenges that they have in their culture. Joshua was telling me this week that he's uh, struggling because he's doing theological study through SATS, the, that's the South African Theological Seminary, and he has to do his assignments in English. So he, Rwanda was originally a Francophone country, and in 2012 they changed to being an English-speaking country, but it means a lot of people, Joshua's vintage, grew up on French, and so he speaks African English like a man who learned French first. So some of his English is quite tortured. He was telling me that in his last job, he went to South Africa, he had to present a paper in English, and he got started, and then they said, stop, and they brought somebody up to translate his English into English. So so it is quite tortured at times, but he, he laughs at himself. He's got that kind of capacity to do that. I just thought I'd show you some of these photos. These are some of the kinds of people and situations that Joshua works with. Uh, this is a man named Francois and his family of three children, uh, a few years ago, we managed to raise some funds and there, was a, a, there were 11 families in that church group that got provided a cow. Now, you see the living space for the cow? That's a very luxurious living space. Typically, the cows live inside, don't get it to eat anything green or anything like that. But for a family to have a cow can change their lives in terms of their capacity to live. And so we we're privileged to be part of that. But this is, again, Joshua trying to lift the economic circumstances of his people. Uh, the next slide is of a couple named Emmanuel and Angelique. Uh, Emmanuel's story is really interesting. Um, uh, Angelique became a Christian and started going to the church. And she said to Joshua, Joshua, I feel guilty coming to church. And he said, why? She said, well, I'm taking communion, but my, my husband is stealing from the people that I'm taking communion with so I feel guilty and then she brought Emmanuel along to church and she outed him publicly in the congregation said I've got my husband with me today and he's stealing from a lot of you people so he got up and confessed that he was a thief and gave his life to Jesus and then his testimony a few weeks later was that he'd reduced his stealing so obviously (laughs) obviously sanctification was underway But, but but Joshua said to me what what do I do? And I said, well, is he a thief because he wants to be? What's the go? No, no, he says neither, he has neither job nor prospect of job. And he's living in a culture where like he, their family isn't around, there's no social welfare. So what do you do when you've got three small children? I mean, that's how my, my family ended up in Tasmania. It's the same thing, right? Because people sometimes have to do these things by necessity. It doesn't make it right but it's just born of their necessitous circumstances. Um, Emmanuel's really cleaned his life up. It's amazing when you go back and see him. I remember when they told me this story, um, we travelled in the car with Emmanuel and he's in the back and my bag's there with my wallet in it. And I'm like, (laughs) do I trust God? Well, I know I trust God, but do I trust Emmanuel? So um, another major challenge they've had in Rwanda is that the government shut 6,000 churches down recently ostensibly for occupational health and safety reasons. Um, and if you went to some of those churches, you could understand that. I wouldn't have picked um, Rugendi as one of those churches because their building is quite good, but the government insisted they have some more toilets and some more pavings and other things. So it's taken them three months to get to raise $4,000 and get their church up to speed so they can open again. Joshua was telling me that some of the church members met in small groups in their homes, but local officials harassed them for meeting there. Now bear in mind this is a country where 
Probably 85% of the people go to church. So church attendance and belonging to church is very much part of their culture. But here the government is harassing them. The government is also saying now that if you're going to be a church leader, you've got to have theological qualifications. Uh, and this, is, this also is born out of some reality because there are a lot of charlatans in Africa. Uh, you see, being a pastor is still a respected profession in Africa. It's not here, but it is in Africa. And uh, as my friend Neil Eichstadt from uh, MMM in South Africa says, in Africa, if you can't do anything, you can start a church. And if you're one of the good persuasive types, you can, you can raise money from people. And if you get really good at it, you can end up on television doing that. So that is a problem, and the government recognises that's a problem. But again, I think there's more to the story. So Joshua has a lot of challenges in his life, but he's a very godly man, and your contribution really helps him do the work of the ministry. And we've seen the church in the time that we've been going there double. So if we were here, it would be a narrow building, rather, in a sense, sort of more the configuration of what you used to have, but 300 people, and at least 150 of them are aged under 12. And the dancing is great, but it kicks up a lot of dust and plays with my asthma a bit. Then there's uh, Juvenile. As I said, Juvenile is married to Dorcas. Dorcas is a sought-after speaker in her own right and occasionally gets to go to neighbouring countries like Uganda to get to speak at ladies' things and so on. Uh, But he's very much the pastor. Joshua is the is the outwardly enthusiastic one. A juvenile is a quieter man, a very humble-spirited man, uh, keen sense of humour but quiet with it. And so he pastors the pastors and he trains the pastors, uses his own money, which he doesn't really have apart from what you give him, to fund petrol so they can go to places to do the ministry and that kind of thing. Um, he's a member of the Inkaranziza uh, let's practice a little bit of Kinyarwandan. Okay, you ready? Can you say Inkuru? Good. Nziza. Nziza. So Inkuru Nziza. Good. Well, that's the, what that means is good news church or gospel church, right? So it's the Brethren Group started in the mid-60s by American missionaries from Burundi. Unlike the the Brethren work in Australia, which started in disparate places, and so when we try to work collaboratively, we have problems because we all started independently. They started from one central place. Uh, they started in the in the Kigali, in the centre of Kigali, and all of the works have spread from there. And so they have a much more centralised approach uh, to doing their work than we do. That's, there's also a bit of a cultural thing there as well. Um, it's to do with the way the government works and that kind of thing. And he sits on that executive. When I was there last year, uh, we were in Rwanda for two weeks, bit over two weeks, and travelled extensively with Juvenile, um, training pastors. Again, I had Tony Lyon with me for that period. And uh, we went to five different locations in the country and um, spent significant time and energy with these people. And Juvenile has a, a tremendous heart for these people to see them develop. But, of course, their problem is going to be uh, what I described in relation to Joshua, and that is that uh, the government is probably going to require that they have theological education. Now, most of these people are not earning a wage even, so how do they afford theological education? I mean, if you're in the Anglican system or the Catholic system, that's different. But for all the you know, sort of the, the more non-conformist type churches, this is a huge issue for these people. 
How do they get training? And and it calls into question even what we've been doing because I would describe what we've been doing is more like professional development, giving people stuff that will help them in the moment. But actually, they they need broader and deeper stuff than that, I think. So lots of challenges. When I was there last year, um, Juvenile confided in me that there was a serious allegation against the current head of the denomination. Um, And the trouble was they had no way of resolving it. Now, you know, you just talked about church constitutional stuff, right? So you put, really, you put those things, often you put those things into place so when something goes wrong, we have an agreed way that we process things, right? We all sign up for that. Well, they had no agreed way for doing anything. So you can imagine the bun fight in the, ch- in the church on a broad scale. In fact, there was one area that we were slotted to go to, but it was even too contentious to go there. The police had been called to a church where two pastors were having a punch-up over this issue and I asked whether I could be any help and they said no the last white person who tried to do this got told to keep their foreign nose out of local business so I don't advise that you do anything and the trouble was I had a relationship with this guy and uh, uh, I felt dishonest knowing this about him um, and pretending that everything was okay and when I came back to Australia he kept writing to me about various things and so one day I just wrote to him and said look you need to know that I know. And he was a bit devastated by that. And I said, look, I, from my point of view, I, I can make no judgment about your guilt or otherwise. So it's not a judgment call that I'm making. But I see your church being polarised and divided over your leadership. And for the sake of the church, you should really step down. That would be the humble thing to do, whether you are guilty or not. And then you ask them to do an investigation and then they can reinstate you if everything's clear. But he refused to do that so they went through a very messy procedure about four weeks ago where he was eventually dismissed. It's very sad. But Juvenile has become the leader. Juvenile was second in charge and uh, because he was second in charge he's taken that mantle. And he's really an ideal man for the job particularly seeing as the group needs reuniting. So one of the things that I'm trying to help him with his strategies for how to reunite uh, the place. And you would know because you've had your own, your own situations here to deal with that you can't just pretend that something didn't happen. Right? You've got to talk about what happened before you can move on to what's next. And their inclination is, well, let's run crusades, let's run seminars, let's all get on the one page that way. But in the background, all of this stuff sits, so I'm trying to help them uh, in that kind of an area, which when you're dealing cross-culturally is actually quite a challenge. Juvenile is trying to find funding for the 190 Inkerum Ziza churches that are still closed and need repair. Uh, it costs about... Peter Andrew is, a, um, is an English brethren missionary who lived there full-time, but his wife got ill, so he's not able to live there full-time, but is there probably six months of the year. And he was telling me that it costs about 6000 Australian dollars to, on average to get the churches up to speed. So that's quite a challenge they face. The city church will probably never reopen. The city church houses, I'm going to say, 1,000 people, Anthea, I'd think. Uh, it's really basically a tin shed that hasn't been completed. And the government's told them unless they, unless they do something, they'll compulsorily acquire the land. 
um, well, they haven't got, you know, it's, it's like a $2 million project, so they'll never be able to do that. And of course, you know, I said to them, well, why don't you sell your money to a developer, sell your land to a developer, get them to give you a, a couple of floors of the building for your church and fund it that way. But they want to build something that looks like a cathedral because that's what you, what you do in that kind of place. Now, I realise we're just about out of time and I've, boy, it's amazing. Um, you got your mobile phone with you? If you want to sign up for our newsletter, you can do that right where you are. Usually I tell people to turn their phones off in church. Turn it on, right? <laughs> if you want to sign up, you can do that. We can stay in touch that way. But let me just uh, talk a little bit about uh, the missional side of things. Um, we, we sang Reckless Love. I think it's a really good choice of a song because of the message that it has. But you see, um, people who lead missional lives know that God has called them into his mission. You know, we have in the, in the Old Testament how Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. In Isaiah 49, but in Isaiah 52, he talks about how God's name was blasphemed amongst the nations because of them. We know that Jesus called the disciples to be salt and light in the world. And there are lots of passages about the church um, and its place in mission generally. But one of my favourites is the... 1 Peter 2, 8 and 9 verse that talks about how we're a chosen people, a royal nation, a holy priesthood, a people belonging to God that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And we often think, well, that's singing praise to God in church. But if you read the context, it's about how we behave in the world and how we represent God in the world. Because it's not just the people over there, it's the people here as well. And I want to bring uh, this talk about mission very much back to that idea of what happens here. Um, because people who lead missional lives discover, if you like, the who, what and where of mission. Now we know in, in Acts 1.8 Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's this local, regional, national, global aspect. Now typically in churches when we talk about mission, we think overseas mission. Now, obviously, overseas mission is important. And I think if a church is not thinking outside of itself, it's not really in God's place. But it's easy for us to say, well, we're doing that there. That kind of lets us off the hook here. But I, I, I feel like, for me, like I've got some, we've got some of our young adults at Ringwood interested in mission and so on. I want to see them to be missionaries here before I ever contemplate them, sending them to be missionaries somewhere else. I've been part of things before where it's kind of been a bit of a disaster because we've endorsed people who couldn't be missionaries here and they get somewhere else and they can't do it there either. Um, so there's this, this whole link that I think is really important. So it's important we find God's place for ourselves. Now what that will mean is that there are some people God wants over there. There'll be some people God wants here. There'll be some people that God wants at other places in between those. It doesn't really matter. The important thing is that we are where God has for us to be. That's the question. Do you know that you are where God has for you to be? And in that context, that we then live uh, what I've called sacred lives in secular contexts. I think it's a really important principle because one of the things that I think we've done as, as a church, broadly speaking, is we've endorsed the idea that, well, if you're going to be a missionary, it has to be over there. Right? 
Or if we talk ministry, we think in terms of running the Sunday school, running the parents' course, preaching in church, being an elder. We think in those terms in terms of ministry. And what we've done is we've, we've undersold the value of what all of us do every day where we are. We've undersold that value tremendously. And we've made mission and church ministry kind of the pinnacle of what it means to serve God. When actually we're meant to serve God wherever we are. And I love this verse in Titus chapter 2 where Paul talks about the behaviour of slaves. And he tells them to, to please their masters, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, to be trustworthy. Why? So that in every way they'll make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. So what does that tell me? It tells me that in my everyday life I should be behaving in a way, on God's mission, I should be behaving in a way that makes the teaching about God our Saviour attractive to people. Now we know that the teaching about Jesus from the church is unattractive to a lot of people in Australia largely because of how they perceive the church and the things that they see the church has done or not done. And some of that is deserved. I mean, in the, in the whole church context, some of that is deserved because it's come from church behaviour. People who claim to be followers of Jesus or representatives of Jesus doing things that are incongruous with the mission, the mission and the message of Jesus. And so what the, what the average person needs to see is another person who presents to them a different picture of what Jesus is like and what the church is really like to make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. So let me think, how many people here are working in a job, in a paid job? So what kind of jobs have we got represented? Let's give us a few, quick. Sorry? Right? Quick? Quick? Okay, quick. Okay. Okay, good. Okay. So I can't remember all those things because of my age, right? But so my challenge is if I'm an IT person, is how do I be a Jesus IT person? If I'm a representative, if I'm a, a reception person, how do I make every person on that phone or who comes into that reception place feel like I've just met Jesus on the phone. I mean, that's what we're talking about, isn't it? I mean, sometimes Christians behave very awkwardly in this way. I was uh, in a line at Churnside Park Shopping Centre a few weeks ago with a young Burmese man that I mentor and there was a man in front of me who was trying to witness to the checkout chick. And he was, in my view, doing an appalling job. He wasn't trying to be a witness, he was trying to lead the witness, he was trying to drag a response out of her. Now he's holding up the whole line of traffic waiting to get through. He's preventing her from doing her stuff. Now he probably went back to his church on Sunday and said I had a wonderful opportunity to witness to somebody but actually he was an embarrassment to be honest. So when I got to the, when I got to the, the person serving, I was the next person in line, she looked at me and sort of, I could see she's sort of gone like this. <laughs> and I said, uh, look, I'd just like to say I believe just like that man but I'm not going to hold you up today. And she smiled and away we went. But I, th- I felt the, oppo- the need to somehow bring balance 
to what had just happened. He was not making the teaching about Jesus attractive at all. And in fact, he's being rude to a whole bunch of people who are waiting to get through because he's dominating the whole situation. Anybody in a nursing home? Anybody here in a nursing home or a a retirement place? Anybody living in those sort of places? Anybody? A few people? Okay. Right? So be Jesus there, right? Because that's where you are most of the time. Be Jesus in those places. Make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive by the way that you behave with people. I just want to show a picture of some of my friends. Um, And there's a mixture of people here. I want to talk about the person in the middle top. That's Tracy. Tracy runs the King's Children's Home in East London in South Africa. Uh, Ten years ago, had somebody dump a baby on her doorstep. What's your response to that? I better find somebody to look after this kid. No, she took the child in. How many have they adopted? Is it eight? Have they... They've adopted eight African children themselves and they've had you know, a few hundred children go through their home. It's a privilege to be involved with somebody like that who says, because I'm a follower of Jesus and because I'm on Jesus' mission, how do I respond in this situation? That's over there. Down the bottom right-hand corner, sorry, my right hand, your left. Oh, no, it works both ways, that's good. Uh, is Sipo. Uh, Sipo has been a Christian for about 25 years very involved in the ANC in South Africa, gone back um, to manage the Christian work in Kailicha, which is South Africa's most dangerous, Cape Town's most dangerous um, settlement, township. Does a wonderful work in the gospel because his life is about being God's person wherever he is. But that over there, the young lady on the top right is a young lady from our church at top right. Oh, the other right. Okay, yeah. He's he's from Ringwood Community Church. She's been a Christian for a bit over 18 months. She was invited to a course by one of our other young ladies, did an Alpha course, gave her life to Jesus. And now her whole life revolves around how she... She's a lawyer by profession, but her whole life revolves around how does she share Jesus where she is with her friends. And she's running evangelistic Bible studies and doing all kinds of things. The young man that's just under under her there, it's a similar kind of story. Been a Christian for three years now um, and he's running Discovery Bible classes at his workplace. Because they understand that God's call is on their life and their response to God is one of mission. I'd love to tell you some of the other stories there but we don't have time to do that. So the question comes to me when I when I hear other people's stories what about me? What am I doing? Have I found where God wants me to be? I don't mean in the church, right? But have I found my missional place in the things of God in my life? Because it's actually something that we are all called to. We're all called to join with God and other people in his mission in the world. And it's great that we do it with other people because it doesn't all depend on me or you. It depends on us together. And in that context, we need to work out what does God have for me? What does God want me to do? Now, the, the story of my own life in this regard is that it shifts, it moves. And it moves through stages of your life. But you need to keep asking that question, what does God have for me next? See, there's nobody in this room who's finished yet. Nobody. Who's the oldest person in this room? Rob, you. <laughs> God hasn't finished with you yet, Rob. Right? He's got more for you to do, right? 
God's not finished with us on, on this earth as far as our ministry and our mission until we go to be with him. So that's something that we should always be questing after. God, what do you have for me next? This is actually one of the exciting things about being a Christian. Over the years I've seen people come to church and they come for their kids and they stay while their kids are there and they go through all of the, the machinations and then their kids are off their hands and they kind of go on a perpetual holiday in their life. And then often they leave the church, more broadly speaking, not just your own local church, because they've never embraced for themselves what it means to be active in God's mission. You see, if you're active in God's mission, there's always next, there's always opportunity, there's always excitement, there's always challenge, there's always purpose. And I think that's the way that God intended for it to be for us. So in that context, just be a witness wherever we are, just in the simple things. On Thursday, I had a long conversation with my neighbours next door who have rejected all of my advances gospel-wise, but I'm still in that, we're still in that process with them. We're not going to give up on them just because they've rejected our advances. They can't reject our relationship and we live so close, they can't ignore us anyway. And then finally, uh, the good thing is that we carry out God's mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, God is not going to ask you to do something that he hasn't equipped you to do. Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. You say to me, it's too hard for me. Yes, of course it is. All of the things that I'm doing are too hard for me. Are they too hard for God? That's the question. See, God has given us his Holy Spirit so we can do what God has for us to do. What a mean God he would be if he said, I want you to do all of this stuff now you're on your own devices. Wouldn't that be mean? But God's not like that. He invests himself in us so that when we depend on him, we can do the things that he's called us to. So may God help you. May God help me with our mission here, in our neighbourhoods, in our communities, in our city, in our state, in our country and overseas. But wait, may we never fall for the trap that mission is just something over there because actually it begins right here and let God work out where that leads to. Thanks for the opportunity of being with you. Can I just pray for us in that now? Lord, uh, we thank you that you choose by your grace to use us. Not only do you pursue us with your love, not only do you send your son Jesus Christ into the world to die for us, but you invest your Holy Spirit in us so that we may be empowered and equipped to do the good works you've called us to. Help us to be people of faith and trust who depend absolutely upon you, who step out in faith, who see you doing great things that we never believed possible because we trusted you. Lord, thank you that Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And we take that seriously to our hearts this week as we, go, as we go into our professions, as we go into our families, our extended networks, our clubs, our connections, as we go into our retirement villages, as we go to our shops, Lord, help us to realise that we are sent by you, that we're representing you wherever we go. And we pray that we'd fulfil your great purpose for our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.